And our first question, we do like this little breakout time in our church. And um, we please meet everyone around you, do a 360, and then go ahead and talk to one or two people. How do you typically handle conflict, right? When you're upset with someone, when you're getting heated, uh, when you're in a disagreement, when someone hurts you, how do you typically handle conflict? So some of us are are runners, right? We run away, we avoid, we pretend it never happened, we just excommunicate them from our lives. Others of us are fighters, we're willing to yell and throw things to, <laughs> or, um, or, or even just sit down and, and talk through it. And some of us are ninjas, right? We're like super passive aggressive. So we won't, we won't run, uh, we won't fight, but we'll like throw ninja stars in the dark. We'll slit their throats, but they don't even know what happened, right? Um, and so some of us are super passive aggressive, and uh, we could be ninjas that way. So anyways, make sure, don't let, let nobody get left behind, okay? Make sure everyone around you is included, but I would love to give you guys two minutes to talk through this. All right, I, thanks so much, everyone. How many of you guys are runners? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you're a runner. Okay, not too many people. How about... If you're a fighter, raise your hand. Oh, a little bit more fighters in the room. What if you're a ninja? Raise your hand. Oh, well, at least you know it. No one wants to admit that, but you're willing to be honest. I appreciate it. This is me and Nina. We're in Barcelona. And um, I just think about me and her. So we're both runners. We love running. Well, Nina talks about running to Australia like a whole continent and ocean away, you know, when we fight. And we can just kind of get really cold, really fast, and then we just separate. We just run in opposite directions. So that's kind of our default. God's worked on us over the years, and we've become better at talking through things. But, you know, I think when you, when you have a default mode, you're just, you're, you just tend to go there every time. But I also put up this picture because I wanted to talk about what we're doing today um, as we open up God's word. You know, I, when we were in Europe, when we went to Rome and Barcelona, we went to some really amazing sites, and this was one of them. Uh, Gaudi did this uh, cathedral that I've never, I mean, I walked in. It's hard to, you can't capture it in photo, but I walked in, and I thought I was in heaven. And I, I started tearing up because it was such a powerful experience. The architecture is inspired by him praying in the wilderness among like large trees. Um, he doesn't like to do sharp angles because they don't represent nature. So he always, everything is in curves, which um, is more earthy and more of the aesthetics of like um, something like a forest. So you walk in and you feel like it's this celestial forest. Like you walked into heaven's forest. It's massive. And... There were just many of those moments as we traveled Europe because the arts, whether it's uh, drawing or sculpture or architecture, was all, all of the greatest talents were given to the church, and, and they were well-funded. And so there was this beauty to it, but there was a deep connection to God in, in all of it as well. So again and again, I felt humbled. I felt small in really good ways, and I got to see the magnificence of God in in ways that might not uh, have been true in the U.S. And then we also had different tour guides that walked us along um, museums or cathedrals or uh, different, different sites like the Colosseum. And some of them were really knowledgeable. They were articulate. We had some guy who was actually on the Discovery Channel, and he does this on the side, and he can answer any question you had. And other, other um, tour guides were just kind of mediocre. They didn't do a great job. But... 
in many ways it didn't matter because we were just beholding what was in front of us. The gravity and the weight of this amazing structure of, of a beauty that lasted centuries. And we would just were stunned by it. When I think about preaching, I think I, I am just a tour guide. You know, Kristen, she did an amazing job. She's just a tour guide. Uh, Chrissy, when she preaches, uh, Pastor Dave, we're all just tour guides trying to point at something magnificent, something weighty, something that will change your life if you're willing to listen and give yourself to it. We're just pointing at that. And even though some of, sometimes our sermons are better or worse, what's really profound is that we're opening Scripture together. And the same words that created this universe, that bred, bred, breathed life into the lungs of Adam and Eve, that erupted mountains and valleys and continents and filled it with ocean is the same words that we're opening up today. And I wonder if that's something we acknowledge this morning. You know, something that we've approached with humility and, and kind of smallness. Saying, God, how do we give ourselves to this? How do we stand in reverence to this? That it's not about Wilson. It's not about how, if I've heard this already, but whether the word of God is transforming my life. And that's how I try to, you know, pastors are the worst critics. If you're a musician, you sit at concerts and you pick out every, every sharp or flat note. If you're a filmmaker, you look at the film and you see like a little block on the side that was a prop. It was supposed to be cut out of frame, but it wasn't. And as a pastor, there were many, many times in my life where I came in with this really critical eye, you know, kind of just evaluating the sermon. And then slowly God just worked on my heart. Like, is it the preacher or is it my word? And I just notice a complete difference when I come into a message, whether I'm listening it to, to it from a podcast, whether I'm hearing Mark preach or Dave preach, whether I'm asking, have I heard this already? Because I have a master's in theology and I've preached a lot of the word. So I've heard a lot of it. But what happens when I come in and I just simply ask, am I doing it? Am I willing to be changed by it? Am I willing to hear God under and through his messenger? Because then whoever's preaching, there's a humility and a hunger. And Jesus says, if you're hungry and thirsty, you'll be filled. And I wonder if this morning we came hungry and thirsty to hear and receive God's word, or if we came filled with knowledge, filled with I already know that, filled with I've already heard that story. It's the hungry who's filled. It's the seeking who finds. And Jesus comforts me at times because he reminds me that when he preaches to a large audience, some of them walk away like that sermon sucked. Can you believe that? Jesus himself preaches to people and they're like, that sermon was terrible. And I'm like, oh man, how, that's okay. I just feel, I just feel better. Thanks, Jesus. Um, and then I, the last thing I want to say kind of around our preaching today is that we're a really casual church. And there's a lot of things that I like about this. You know, I get to be fully myself. I don't have to posture or pretend. Some of you walk in and you haven't come to church for years or you're an ex-church person and you're like, I just feel really comfortable here. I could sit on the floor, I could wear a sweater, and I can still uh, be in the presence of God. And there's an approachability to some of our casualness. Um, there's approachability to us calling me Wilson and not Pastor Wilson. That's what I've asked of you. When you ask 
when you call me Pastor Wilson, I say, just call me Wilson, because I want this approachableness. I also uh, value being your brother over being your pastor, even though I'm both. But I've fully recognized what we've given up in that process. And some of that, I'm like, how do I win that back? Because when we are very casual, um, there's an irreverence that happens. When we're very casual, there's something that we don't really feel the full weight or value of something. We, we just walk up in street clothes instead of saying, this is something we are to revere. Even if we're in street clothes, that our hearts could be in a posture of worship and reverence. And I, I'm just kind of being pulled by the two. I prefer one, but I feel like the other um, is something we also need. And so a lot of churches stand when they read scripture. Um, and so I want to invite us to do that this morning. And I hope that as we stand, there would be not just a, it wouldn't be a physical thing, but it would be primarily a heart thing. That we're saying, God, your word is what's speaking to us this morning. And your word is powerful. And your word is perfect. And your word is transforming. And we're here to, hear, we're here to learn and hear about that. Will we all stand together? As we read God's word. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two other, others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two or of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. May God add the blessing to his word. Would you all take a seat? When I look at this passage, I think about the broader context. Jesus is speaking about ecclesia, his church. He talks about his kingdom, what the fullness of his kingdom would look like as he gave the Sermon on the Mount. And here he gives specific instructions um, as we're living in this tension of his kingdom being fully formed when he, came, when he comes back and his kingdom um, being, being here and not yet in expression, in the expression of the church. We're supposed to embody kingdom values. We're, we're, we're supposed to worship this king primarily and follow him. And as he's laid out in the last chapter in Matthew, he's talking about what does the church look like? How does it look different? How is it supposed to be governed? And the first thing he says is that his eyes and his heart is on the little ones, is on the children is on the people who are outcasts, the people who are really new to the faith, the people who are struggling in their faith, that his eyes and his heart are on them, and that our eyes and our heart are to be on them as well. That we're not to just kind of go into our cliques and head out to lunch, but we're supposed to look for people who are left out or new. That if we're strong in the faith, we're not supposed to lord our righteousness over others. We're supposed to sit down next to them and hold their hand and walk with them into strength. Right? If, if someone's hurting and moving away from the community, we're supposed to go and find them. Just as Jesus does this for us, we are to do 
for our other brothers and sisters. And here Jesus speaks about what it looks like for us to healthily confront our brothers and sisters who sin against us. And I want to say that this will happen, right? It's not if it happens, it's when it happens, even though the passage says if. And especially a church like ours, and I think we're a church that is family, and we're supposed to be family. The way that that Paul refers to the church uses oikos, and oikos literally means family. If we, and as we are family together, as we become closer to each other, as we support one another, love one another, know one another, we're also going to hurt each other. You know, real, literal family hurt each other maybe the deepest, as we love each other deepest. And a spiritual family, if, if we really love and know each other, we're going to hurt each other as well. And this is what Jesus shares with us in how to process that hurt and how to proceed uh, in the relationship as we hurt each other. It says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, think about this. First, um, the, the person who's owning this process is the person who's being sinned against, right? And so let's say Tim, could you raise your hand? Let's say he sinned against me, okay? I was just really mad at you last week because you you were so mean. Now, when someone sins against me, um, what do I usually do? What do you usually, usually do? You're saying all of us most likely will say, Tim, you hurt me, so it's all on you to make this relationship better, right? Tim should approach me. Tim should talk to me. Tim should apologize to me. Tim should probably grovel at my feet and ask me how to make this right. It's all on Tim. But what does Jesus say? Jesus say, actually, it's on me. That's already something I'm very uncomfortable with, right? Usually when I feel offended, I make it about them. What do I do? I get bitter. I talk crap, right? I give them the cold shoulder, you know, or at best I'm polite. But Jesus says, no, if you're in my kingdom, if you're in this family, do it this way. He calls me to go to Tim. He calls me to take initiative, to walk towards Tim, and it feels like walking into death. Have you ever walked towards a hard relationship? Have you ever walked towards someone who's hurt you? Oh my gosh, I feel like I'm pulling apart darkness to get to Tim. I'm scared out of my mind, and I'm afraid of all of these other things, like he'll hurt me more, right? Because if I don't approach him in anger and in bitterness and try and get him back, if I approach him the way Jesus asks us to approach people in more vulnerability, in more honestness, that's hard. That is so hard. So I just want to acknowledge that, and I want to acknowledge how difficult that is. But Jesus says to go. Now, just stop there. Have you owned your responsibility when you feel hurt? Or have you put it all on them? And have you gone? You might have heard this a hundred times, but I feel like we're probably not doing it as a community, and we can do it better if we are. The second part is tell, right? So not only do I have to go up to him, but I am called, I'm supposed to own talking to him, having a direct conversation with him in a gentle way. Galatians says that when you catch a brother sin, you have to be gentle with them, right? You're not going after, you're not going for an eye gouge, you're not going for the throat. You're not yelling. You're being gentle. And if you've ever heard the voice of Jesus rebuke you, it's so gentle. 
And in that gentleness, we repent and weep and feel safe to change. I hope you've heard the gentle voice of the Lord in his confrontation of you, and would you extend that to your brother? But in that conversation, there's also honesty. There's truth. It's not, this, it's not just to go and talk to them, like, how's the weather? It's not just go and talk to them and, you know, pretend everything's just okay. There's an honest conversation. And usually I like, if I'm doing it well, I, I start with, I felt hurt. I, I open up first. I say, hey, like, what you said, I, how I felt was I felt hurt, I felt belittled, I felt disrespected when you said this. And I just kind of put it on the table. I hope that they're willing to listen, to receive that. And then the third thing it says is that we're supposed to do it between you and him alone, right? So what does that mean? That the first person you should talk to is the person who hurt you. The first person you should talk to is the person who hurt you alone, that it's you and him. It's not you and all your friends and him. It's you and him. And that would, that would solve like 90% of our church conflicts if we were willing to follow these four steps to go, to have an honest and gentle conversation, and to have it with them first. I know it's difficult. I know it takes a lot of maturity and wisdom and discernment, but I believe we can do this. And then the last thing is that we're to, um, our heart is to win back the relationship so that you can gain a brother, right? So that they won't be an enemy anymore. They won't be a stranger anymore. They won't be someone we cut out of our family, but that we would have reconciliation in our relationship again. It's a powerful thing if you've ever reconciled with someone. It's a powerful moment to ask for forgiveness or to express your hurt. And I just think that it's so easy to do all of this the wrong way. I admit it, I've done it the wrong way, right? Instead of going, I run. Instead of telling them directly, I'm passive aggressive and throwing ninja stars, right? Instead of telling them alone and first, I tell everyone else except for them, right? I tell everybody else, I build out like my personal army, you know, and then I I tell everyone to mistreat this person. Um, I, don't, I don't actually do that, but I'm trying to empathize with people who are. And, um, but I've probably done it past. And then, um, and then having a heart to say, I'm not sitting in front of you to get revenge. I'm not sitting in front of you so that you feel the pain I'm feeling. I'm not sitting in front of you to cut you off. I'm sitting in front of you with an open heart to ask for our relationship back. Man. Those are difficult tasks. You know, when I think about Renew, I think this, in the last five years, if I could change, like if I had three wishes for Renew, right? I don't know what the other two are, but this is like one of them. If I could wave a magic wand and say, everyone, do this thing, it would be like this. It would be like, solve all your conflicts this way. Because we have a really difficult time doing this. Especially if you've grown up as as an Asian American, one of my mentors said when he observes Asian Americans, conflict and anger are always tied together, right? They're like married. And he says it doesn't have to be. But oftentimes that's our experience of it, right? We, we get quiet, we build up, and then if we have external conflict, there's fireworks and anger and yelling. And God gives us a totally different example of this. 
And it's been my other friends, my non-Asian friends, that have really coached me and helped me understand how to do this well. Because their culture doesn't struggle with the same things. That's why I'm always praying for diversity for Renew, because we have so much to gift each other in our differences. And this is one of the ways that my black and white uh, and Mexican friends have gifted me, to have different kinds of conversations um, than I've had in the past. But, but, you know, again, we don't get to wave a magic wand, and it's not a wish thing. It's a hard work thing. And I would say that I've prayed for this for our church, and I've seen kind of these seeds of us starting to do this well, starting from the leadership, seeing uh, wives just kind of have really honest, open conversations and, and mature conversations, just talk through stuff, see leaders of our church sit down you know, sometimes with a beer because it numbs some of the <laughs> anger and, and just talk through things and be honest with each other and be face-to-face, pick up the phone and have hard conversations. So I've been really encouraged to see us grow in this area. And I've seen it kind of happen from the most mature of us, and I pray that it would continue to happen for the rest. You know, uh, when Pastor Dave got hired on our staff, um, one of the wisest people at our church said, hey, like, the, I could see Satan just splitting you guys up and dividing the church. Like, that would be the easiest and most direct form of attack to, to cripple our church. And so me and Dave, you know, the, even the first couple of weeks, I said, every few months, let's sit down and just clear the table. Whether it's a big thing or a small thing, let's just ask each other, hey, how, is there anything that I've offended you with, that I've sinned against you? Is there any decision that didn't sit right? Let's just clear the table. And over the last year, we've done that. It's been a regular thing, and it's really brought great unity and trust, and we've been able to talk through the big and small things together. And I hope that, that you would be able to do that as well. Over the last couple of years, I've, again, walked into the darkness, into death. <laughs> That's how I feel, to have really difficult conversations. And as a pastor, I've started to own that this is probably the most difficult part of leadership, but a part that I hope to be an example of and to grow in myself. So again, I just want us to stop and not ask if you know this, but ask if you're obeying Christ in this, especially if you're a leader, you're called to even higher standard. Is there someone in the room right now? Is there someone on leadership right now that has sinned against you, that has hurt you? And are you owning your piece of it? And you have a huge responsibility to go, to talk, to do it alone, and to gain the heart of, your, of that relationship back. Now, it's very possible that they don't listen to you. And again, it doesn't say that they don't change immediately, right? If your brother does not change immediately, if they don't turn and you leave, if they're not totally a different person, it's just listen. Are they willing to listen and own the offense that you, that you um, took? Are they willing to apologize? I think that should be a part of it as well. If they're not, take two or th- one or two others am- along with you that every charge may be established by uh, the evidence of two or three witnesses. And that's in the next passage. So at Renew, we're asking that you bring someone above you to have this conversation. You're not bringing your best friend 
You're not bringing your posse to do an intervention meeting. You're not bringing the person who's always on your side, no matter what, you know, is always affirming your position. No, you're bringing someone above you. So if you're a member, I would say talk to your small group leader first. Um, Also, or talk to someone who is your life stage shepherd or pastor, right? So small group leader, life stage shepherd or pastor. That would be Mark for the college ministry, Ben for the youth, um, Ken and, and Chrissy for the young adults, um, Dave for the families. And what are we doing there? And if they're unable to resolve it, then we're bringing it to the elders of the church. Um, very little conflict should come directly to me, right? Because if we're doing this process well, we're resolving the majority of conflict in our church. But myself, Jonathan Whitmore, and Dave, uh, in partnership with our wives, are the last line of defense to uh, resolve conflict, okay? If it's something very severe, you are totally, uh, I am totally available. If it's, if it's, some, if it's something like sexual harassment, I, th- come to me directly or one of our wives directly, and we want to listen and, and be there for you. If you're feeling abused, come to us directly. Um, so we're, we're totally open to that. But in general, most conflicts should be one-on-one and then um, someone above you and then ultimately us. And why are we doing that? Because we want an objective voice and perspective into the situation, right? So you're bringing someone who has, a, who has spiritual authority but also isn't, again, isn't just on your team. They're there to listen to the other person as well. And most conflicts involve two people. Most of the time, you're not a pure victim. Maybe sometimes you are. But most of the time, you probably offended them, they offended you back, then you offended them back, right? And so we want someone to be able to objectively affirm or, or unaffirm um, the things that are being brought up and to, and to be a voice of wisdom and to be a voice of mutual reconciliation or, or one person reconciling to the other person. So that's the second step. It's not talking to a bunch of friends. It's not building a personal army to exclude somebody. Right? It's talking to someone who has spiritual authority over you, um, whether it's your small group leader or your life stage pastor. And then this is when um, it gets really heavy. It says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as a Gentile or a tax collector. Treat him as someone who's outside of the church family. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, what is this saying? It's saying that your ownership stops when the elders of the church get involved, right? So you own that first conversation. You own the second conversation. Even if they reject you, even if they mistreat you on the front end, you have to own a second conversation to bring in a life stage pastor or your small group leader. And then you surrender it to the church. You don't take revenge. You still don't gossip. But you say, hey, now that the eldership is involved, we're surrendering this brother or this sister, the situation to the eldership. And we're allowing them to shepherd and make decisions. So that's when your ownership ends. It doesn't end until then. And then... You know, if I were to be totally honest, I'm reading this passage, and I feel really, like, humbled and, and, and a little scared about the weight of authority that Jesus is gifting, maybe not gifting, asking the leadership, the elders to steward 
It's really heavy. And, and I feel the weight of it, especially as the lead pastor, okay? That Jesus gives us the power to bind and loose, and he also gifts us with his presence and permission. A lot of this last passage is uh, taken out of context, right? We kind of try to apply it in all these categories, like two or three are gathered, oh, today's turnout was totally small at our church, but when two or three are gathered, Jesus is with us, you know, like, here's an encouraging note, or whatever you ask, right? If that applied to everything, man, I'd be asking for all kinds of money, but some of you have tried this passage, and you're still not a millionaire, so it doesn't apply to all of these different contexts. I think there is other contexts that it applies to, but in this passage, it's specifically speaking about confrontation, and there's something really comforting to know that when we are approaching a brother or sister by ourselves or with others, that Jesus is with us. That his presence and his peace and his discernment to have wisdom in the conversation is close by. And some of my most powerful spiritual experiences has been in a confrontation with a brother or sister, and I feel the spirit telling me what to say, especially telling me what not to say, and to try to restore that relationship. I hope that you get to experience that as well. But what, what is the ownership um, of our church leadership? What are we to own? Uh, me and, and Dave and Jonathan in partnership with our wives. God, Jesus has given us specifically the power to bind and loose. What that looks like is the removal or restoration into church leadership and service. That we are to promote people into more leadership and more platform. And we're also to ask people to step down when we feel like they themselves are unhealthy or cause unhealth to other people on their team. We are to uh, remove and restore people in the church, meaning that we get to invite people into our community, but there are times where we're going to ask people to leave our community as well. What a heavy responsibility. I'm so grateful that I get to do this with amazing couples uh, I would hate to do this by myself, and Jesus. And this is translated into different ways. I've met, read many commentaries on this, but here's where I land, that we get to affirm the believer's forgiveness or salvation, that Jesus ultimately is the one who gives salvation to the believers, but as the eldership, we are the voice of Jesus into the forgiveness and restoration of the believer or we are the voice of Jesus in, some, in, in different points to, to help, the, help the person question whether they are truly saved. That's an immense responsibility that we have as leaders. And as we do this, again, we are blessed by the presence of, of Jesus being with us in those really heavy moments, and also that he uh, um, actualizes the decision we make and gives us discernment in the process. Let me give you a few examples as we uh, close our time to get today um, about some of the heavier decisions that I've had to make in ministry. Um, two of the ones that come to mind really quickly, and this is honestly young, in my younger uh, points in ministry. I don't know, I don't think I've handled this uh, completely correctly, but in some of my younger moments in ministry up to some of my um, more mature moments in ministry, I have removed people from the church. So um, there's only been three incidences 
One of them was a guy who uh, sexually harassed women of the church. And many of them talked to me about it. And then I had a conversation with him where he's basically gloating about it. And I didn't do a good job because uh, I didn't offer him any recourse. I just asked him to leave. And I think I would have handled that a little differently. The second person, uh, similarly, he, he uh, texted um, inappropriate photos to a minor in the church. And I spent two weeks basically uncovering who this person was. And then again, I didn't offer recourse. I just asked him to leave. And I, I would have done that differently as well. And then the third person, uh, this, was final, this was when I was uh, an elder of the church. Um, I think I was more of an angry brother dash staff member in my earlier days. Um, later in the church, there was a woman who um, was very sexually promiscuous, but also, and I would say in a greater way, extremely manipulative. And so she would just kind of seed dissension um, into many of the people in, in Renew about the leadership, uh, trying to divide people from the leadership. And she did both things. And uh, people started being very concerned. And, at a, and then we asked to shepherd her. We said, hey, you committed the sin, and we want to disciple you and help you grow as a, as a believer and help you become really healthy. And she didn't see any unhealth about uh, her approach to spirituality. And she also didn't want to submit to our shepherding. And I always think that you should go to a church where you are willing to submit to the shepherding of the church. And so after that, we asked her to uh, leave our, our community. But I also think of really, um, that was kind of the uh, minor mo moments of ministry, or, or not minor, but um, the lesser moments, um, the fewer moments. There's probably been about 10 to 12 leaders of the church uh, in different capacities, whether worship or on staff or a small group leader, where they've sinned in a way that disqualified them from ministry for a season. And I asked them to step down from the ministry, not to leave the community. And um, they were willing to do that. But not only were they willing to do that, they were willing to walk through a time of restoration. Where we said, instead of focusing on serving the church, let's focus on your personal uh, spiritual health. And when, when I do that, when I ask someone to step down, I don't isolate them. I do everything I can to meet with them more and to walk with them closer. That's my commitment to you, if I ever ask you to step down, that I will, I will walk more closely with you or find a shepherd in our church who is willing to walk more closely with you. And those 10 people that I've been able to walk closely with, I've seen almost all of them come back into ministry and some into greater ministry. And not only do I feel closer to them because I got to shepherd them in an intimate way, but they, when they do ministry, they are hiding nothing. You know, there's no hidden past there's no closet. They are able to be totally authentic with their, with their person and with their ministry and have the affirmation of uh, myself as their pastor. I also think of people that I've been able to, uh, again, in our church role, a platform. You know, Kristen shared an amazing sermon last Sunday, and it took me about a year and a half to get her on stage, and then uh, I got to coach her. And she did it, again, in submission to our authority, but there was this great covering over her where she felt really comforted to say that uh, Wilson is the one who wants me to preach, you know. So I get an, uh, this immense privilege alongside of 
uh, our shepherds to ask people to step away from ministry for the sake of closer shepherding and love and also ask people to take on greater ministry because they have more to offer the church. You know, the, the most severe case that I've seen um, in terms of church, one of the most severe that I wasn't personally involved with is um, a, a man who slept with his mother-in-law, right? So this man, his father married another woman. Maybe his wife had passed away, and he slept with her. And that's like crazy severe and extremely explicit when you think about our normal church conversations. And Paul gets to speak into this. So this is a case in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And it really works through all of the things that we talked about, especially the last section. It said, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And that kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who is, has been doing this? And then he talks about, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. When we think about the most severe sins, one of the most merciful and kind things we can do is actually remove someone from the community so that they feel the full weight of their sin. Again, we don't do this easily. I do it in fear and trepidation. But there is a time and a place where we do this, and Paul does this here. And a, a reason for that is because it's kind of like um, if you've ever talked to a family who has a kid that's uh, abusing drugs severely, like meth or cocaine or heroin, but they still kind of allow their kids to live with them, they feed them, they say everything's okay, um, they, let, they give them money. We call it enabling the sin, right? That you're enabling their addiction. And as a church body, it's possible to do that as well. If you see someone sleeping around and taking advantage of people, if you see someone abusing power, they're causing destruction to the church, but they're also causing destruction to their soul. And if we don't confront them, they're, they're destroying the community, but they're also destroying themselves. And so what, does the, what is the family often told to do by psychologists? And it's heartbreaking for, for a parent to do this, but put them out of the house and let them feel the, the severity of their addiction, the, their homelessness, their joblessness. They, they don't have family around them. And sometimes when they hit the bottom of the barrel, and of course you keep certain, uh, you try to do certain points of contact so that they know that they can come home, but hopefully when they feel the, the weight of their sin or the weight of their addiction, the severity of it, they turn a new leaf and they come back and they want to change instead of want to continue to be addicted. And it's amazing to see when Paul writes a second letter to the Corinthians that he asks the church to welcome this brother home, even in the severity of his sin. He says, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excess sorrow, excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to affirm your love for him. And so there's always recourse. There's always a space to repent and come home. That Jesus and, and the Father always welcomes the prodigal son. But we hope uh, to do this in the space of repentance and desire to change. And, and we hope that the person who runs after sin would 
feel pain in order and discipline in order to repent. Um, maybe some of the heaviest uh, conversations I've had um, is for that very purpose, right? For the purpose that someone might ex- re-examine their life and say that they are going to recommit their life to Jesus. Paul, in, the, in, in this passage, says, when I wrote that letter, I know I caused you pain. When I know, wrote that letter, I know I inflicted pain on that brother. But that, but that pain is to cause sorrow, and that sorrow is to cause repentance. And he says, I don't regret causing that pain because you got to repent. You know, there's this terrible job, part of my job where at moments in my life, I am to cause pain to you so that you would repent. And I remember these really difficult moments where I sat in front of a few brothers and sisters in the lifetime of my ministry, and I, I said, you know, I love you. I've had the privilege of pastoring you for 10 plus years, and even though you think you're a Christian, I would say that the evidence of your life points to another master and another God. And it's a hard conversation. But you know what's worse than that conversation? is them being a goat, is them thinking that they're saved, and Jesus saying, I never knew you. And as an as a under-shepherd, as a pastor of their soul, there's these really, uh, really like intense and um, deep moments where I am trying to affirm or unaffirm someone's salvation. I cannot gift it to anyone, but I have the weight and responsibility of saying, I think you should re, um, um, rethink whether you've truly given your life to Jesus. Rethink whether you've truly hated your sin and asked for repentance. Rethink whether Jesus is truly your Lord and Savior. Those are really difficult moments for me, but again, a more difficult moment is for them to walk their whole life think that, thinking that they prayed this prayer so they could do all these other things, and then on judgment day, right, as it says um, in in the last text, that they don't really know Jesus. I pray that all of you would join me in this responsibility in a limited way, okay? Going back to the first passage, that we would take each other's sins seriously, especially when, uh, and when we're offended, but we'll do it in a way where it's face-to-face, where we own going, where we own talking in a gentle way, where we own uh, restoration, our heart for restoration, where we, when we feel rejected or hurt again, own the second piece of bringing in a shepherd and having another conversation. I believe that our church will be immensely, will grow immensely in our spirituality and us as a community if we do this well. The alternative of this is getting in a conflict and walking away. The alternative of this is gossiping. The alternative of this is distance. The alternative of this is that we don't have long and lasting and deep friendships. When we do this well, we become a family in really profound ways. We have deep friendships, and we love Jesus and each other more. Father, we come to you, and we know that this wasn't a light passage. And um, we know that we need to have hard conversations. But I think about the moments where we've done that well. I think about retreat where we stopped to pray for each other and sat in front of each other and asked for forgiveness or was vulnerable in in our hurt. And we got to see 
um, these really intimate conversations um, ignite into hugs and tears and reconciliation and deeper friendships. I think about the leaders in this room that I have so much respect for because they were willing to pick up the phone. They were willing to grab coffee and sit in front of a brother or sister who hurt them or who that, that they have conflict with and have a conversation around love and gaining a friendship and, and honesty. And I pray, Lord, that you would gift our church with this. I know that right now there's people in this room who have a brother or sister that have hurt them. I know that right now there's people in this room that are holding on to unforgiveness and bitterness, maybe for years, maybe towards a family member. And Lord, we have to own forgiveness too. I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts towards the one person that we're asked in this morning through your word, through the very voice of Jesus to reconcile with. Own going, own talking, and own a heart of gaining our brother. I pray that this morning you would do that uh, to us. Uh, do that for us. I just want to stop a brief moment before communion. And for you to stand at a crossroad. As you think about the person who have hurt you. That you would stand at the crossroad of scripture. And either obey it or disobey it. Either own your role in going and talking and being honest or not and disobey scripture. I want all of us to stand in the crossroad this morning and make a decision. Will we talk to the Lord about the person who have hurt us and ask him to help us to obey his word this morning?